Almighty God, you are the living God. You are indeed loving, merciful, gracious, but this does not remove your attributes of vengeance and judgment and wrath. You are indeed an awesome and an awful God. You are indeed glorious and gracious. You are our Lord and our Savior. Reveal to us this morning, Lord, the places where we are not trusting in Christ alone for our sacrifice of sin. Grant us, I pray, repentance and faith that we may not trample the Son of God, but instead treasure Him. That we may not profane the blood of the covenant, but consider it precious. That we may not outrage the Spirit of grace, but honor Him. Would you grant us a right and a healthy fear of you this morning, Lord. That we may heed the warning from our text and be careful in these dangerous days of which we walk. That we might be a people that reflect your glory. And that we may be a people that will stand. A people that will be firm. We ask, Father, that you'll do these things for your namesake. For your namesake is indeed wonderful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This text this morning requires a lot of care. This text has been used, I believe, over and over again as a club to beat God's people up, to create doubt and despair and dread in their hearts. I come this morning knowing that this tendency is there, and I pray, and I have been praying that the Spirit of God would would not do that in our midst. And yet this, this text has a specific purpose, and that is this. It is to warn the church of God of imminent danger that's not outside of us, but that is in our midst, that may be, in fact, in your very heart this morning. So it's a strong, stern warning that cannot be either ignored or apologized for. Right? We've come here this morning in God's providence. God knows that each one of you here this morning needs to hear this message. My calling as a shepherd isn't to beat the sheep, but to feed them. But as any father knows, there are times when you need to draw your child close and give hugs, and then there's time you have to 
be stern and warn them very strictly and sternly. And let them know that because you love them, you've got to speak very difficult words. Our God and Father is no different in that this morning he has come through his word, I believe, to speak to us very strong and difficult words. It is our responsibility this morning to hear these words and to heed them. And my prayer that it will produce a fear for God that is healthy and appropriate and urgent and one that will give us confidence. Confidence that there is no place to rest except for in our Lord Jesus Christ. Every other ground is shaky. My prayer is that we will have this hope and this desire and this love for Christ this morning. We'll so, we'll so be driven to the cross because of the despair that is being spoken of here. The, the, the anguish, the difficulty that is here for those who are not in Christ. There is indeed no condemnation for those, right? Who are what? In Christ. There's terrible condemnation for those who are not in Christ. And this morning, this is the message that we've been, in God's love and care, been given to hear and to heed. We find that in verses 19 through 25, there was an appropriate response to the gospel laid out for us very clearly and carefully. We spent a lot of weeks on these texts, verses 19 through 25 says the appropriate response to the gospel, Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ and him crucified, the work of Jesus Christ, his person and work appropriately responded to is that we have a, verse 22, a confident, or excuse me, a full assurance of faith. Verse 23, a confession of hope that is not wavering. Verse 24, a love that is stirred up that we may do good deeds. For one another. So we've seen this appropriate response to the gospel for the last several weeks. This morning, we're going to look at the inappropriate response to this gospel. The inappropriate response to this gospel. And, and as we look at this, I want us to notice this. There's really only one point, but then two supporting points of that one point. So there's three points, okay? Point number one, point number one, warning against apostasy. Warning against apostasy. This is verses 26 and 27. The next two points simply support this point, and, it, and these, are, these are the points. Point number two, apostasy scorns the work of God. Apostasy scorns the work of God. This is verses 28 and 29. And point number three, apostasy ignores the person of God. Point number one, warning against apostasy. Point number two, apostasy scorns the work of God. Point number three, apostasy ignores the person of God. And we're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 26 through 31. Verses 26 through 31. Warning against apostasy. Look with me, if you will, at verse 26. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The question has to be asked, what exactly is this sin that's being spoken of here? In the Greek here, the word deliberately is actually at the beginning of the sentence. It's the, it's the idea that this, this word deliberately is the emphasis for the sentence. This sinning is, is a sinning that's being done deliberately or continually or intentionally. There's not this um, uh, falling into this, but an intentional effort to deliberately go on sinning in this way. What is this sin? Well, in church history, this passage has been understood that if a person comes to Christ and has been baptized and then sins after that, they then... This, this passage applies that there is no sacrifice for their sins anymore. That espouses a type of perfectionism. And many have asked, is this exactly what it's speaking of? Is it speaking of someone who, once they are saved, they never, have the, they never will sin again? Well, we do know that when, when one is saved, when one comes to Christ, there is indeed a distinction, a difference. There's something that takes place in their life. They're now a new creature in Christ. There is a sense where 1 John chapter 2 is true, where it says, 1 John chapter 2 at the very beginning, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So there is a sense where when we come to Christ, there is a sense where we need to keep his commandments, and that is a testimony of whether we are indeed in Christ or not. But whoever keeps, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John chapter 2 at the very beginning. So there it is. So are we to be sinless after we are saved? Is there no longer a grip or a struggle with sin? Is sin and its effects completely removed? What we find in Scripture is that that is not true. And that's good to know that that is found in Scripture because in our own hearts we know that's not true. And we're just hoping that the Bible says that. <laughs> that we have sinned. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we've sinned deliberately after our conversion. That should break our heart. That shouldn't be something that we delight in or continue in, but it's true. Remember a while ago I said First John chapter 2 says that if we're in Him, then we will abide in Him, we'll keep His commandments. 1 John chapter 2 at the very beginning, right? 1 John chapter 1 at the very end. In other words, the, the verses immediately preceding 1 John chapter 2. Listen to these. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've been there too, brothers. I've, I've, I've said that verse out loud so that my ears could hear it again because my heart didn't feel it. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. 
My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. So here we see that though we are going to sin, we're not to enjoy sin or to pursue sin, but instead it is something that's there and we have to come to Christ with it. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And that's the struggle that John communicated, this pastor who was speaking to this church, this disciple of Christ. We also find that Paul himself had the same struggle, don't we? I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Is that your testimony? It's mine. This was a saved Paul in chapter 7 of Romans. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself may serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In other words, there's sin still there. There's not a perfectionism. And brothers and sisters, this passage in verse 26 is not speaking of individual sins that one may struggle with or have after they're saved. It's not what's being spoken of here. As I mentioned, these sins, as we see described in verse 26, they are deliberately, they're deliberately taking place. And because of this, what we, and I've already given you the point so you know what this is, this sin here that's being spoken of is apostasy. It's an intentional turning away from God. It's an intentional turning away specifically, let me be very sharp here on this point, specifically turning away from Jesus Christ. As it says here in verse 26, if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth. What is that phrase? What is the knowledge of truth? Well, that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the shortened understanding of what I mean when I say the gospel. Jesus Christ means the person of Christ. He's the radiance of the invisible God. He's the very Son of God. He's greater than Moses and the angels. Isn't that exactly what the beginning of Hebrews said? And then later on, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Meaning that when He went to the cross, He shed His blood for what? For the remission of sins. The work of Christ. In other words, the later, the latter part of the book of Hebrews as we were going through it, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, the person of Christ. Chapters 5 through up to 10 talks about the work of Christ. In other words, friends, in one word, the gospel. That's what's being spoken of here when it speaks of this knowledge of truth. If one goes on sinning after receiving this knowledge of truth, the gospel, and its clarity, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's this understanding of apostasy of hearing and knowing who Christ is and what he's accomplished and saying no thank you I'm going to deal with this on my own terms in my own way we know this is true scripture says it all over the place that there will be apostasy 1 Timothy 4 1 says now the spirit expressly says that in latter times what will happen some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and Teachings of demons. We know this by example. Probably the most notorious, is it not, is Judas. 
He was was with Christ. And he abandoned the faith. Walked away. If Jesus and his disciples, if Jesus had an apostate in the midst of his disciples, what's the likelihood or the possibility that there could be one who could walk away from Christ in in our midst this morning? It's there. We also note, this is probably less noted, it's a man by the name of Demas in scriptures. We find him popping up in different places. It's interesting that he was an encourager and helper of Paul. And then we find in 2 Timothy, which is near the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4.10, it says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone back to Thessalonica. Demas was one who was with Paul, helping him, being a part of the work. And yet, in the midst of Paul, in the midst of Jesus, there were men who left the faith, who walked away, who were apostates. So not only does Scripture tell us that in 1 Timothy, but also the examples of Judas and Demas. But finally, and I think the one that's most important for us this morning in the book of Hebrews, is that the nation of Israel, in Romans 9, 6, it says, Not all Israel is Israel. We wonder what that means. What that means is described for us in Hebrews chapter 3. If you would look there, you can look back. We've read this many times already before. But Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. This pastor is preaching this passage, preaching this sermon, and he gets to this part in chapter 3, verse 16, and he says, For who were those who heard and, had, and yet rebelled? And he's speaking of God's people who were led out of Egypt. And he's saying, who were those who had heard the message or the promise and yet rebelled? Who were they? Well, they were Israelites, is the answer. Verse 16, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Well, yeah, that's that's who it was. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Well, it's the same people, the Israelites. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Well, yeah, that's who it was. And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So God's people that he led out of the land of Egypt and led through the wilderness, he says that he has sworn that they will not enter his rest, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. The promise of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us. This good news, this, this knowledge of truth, this gospel has come to us just as it has came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were apostate. They abandoned the faith. How? They did not believe in the promise that God had given to them. So there were a portion, there was a group within this nation called Israel that wasn't really Israel. Why? Because they were not of faith. They didn't believe. They were all together. You couldn't pick them out by looking at them, could you? They were all part of the group that left Egypt that was given the promises of God. In our text this morning, this pastor is concerned that those who are in his congregation may be those who are not of faith. 
Now, how could they not be of those of faith? Because he just described in great detail in chapters 1 through 10 that for them to receive Christ, it meant they had, they meant they had to abandon the synagogue. They no longer are going to find their approach and they're being drawn near to God through the sacrifices and the system of the Old Testament and the rituals. And in order for them to be genuinely saved and in Christ, they had to abandon their old way of understanding the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and come to the superior covenant and to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This congregation was finding it to be a very difficult thing. Because when they abandoned the synagogue, they also abandoned a lot of their social network. They were being persecuted. They were going through difficult times. Some of them were losing their jobs. It was difficult for them to do this. The rituals and the sacrifices, it wasn't that they loved them so much. It's just that they were so normal and ordinary. So easy for them just to keep doing what they were doing concerning the Old Testament and sacrifices. Couldn't they do both? Couldn't they believe in Jesus and take care of do the sacrifices and kind of get it on both terms and then maybe everything's covered then? This going on in sin deliberately is speaking specifically of them going on to give those sacrifices. How often do they have to go to the sacrifices? Well, we know in Hebrews chapter 10, when do they do it? Often. Continuously, right? He sacrifices every year, the Day of Atonement, but over and over again. So what are they doing in this deliberate going on and sinning? They're deliberately and going on and giving these sacrifices in hopes that they will cover for their sin, these sacrifices, instead of Christ being the total and the absolute sacrifice. Well, Shane, is that exactly what they mean? I believe so. Look at verse 26 again and notice with me carefully. For if we go on sinning deliberately, that's a continuous over and over again thing. Go on, continue sinning. Deliberately, after receiving this knowledge of truth, the gospel of who Christ is and what he did for sacrifice, listen, there no longer remains, here it is, a sacrifice. What sacrifice is that? The sacrifice of Christ. You see what's happening here? They're abandoning Christ in their apostasy. They're saying, I'm going to continue to do these other sacrifices as the Old Testament did, and they're abandoning. They're saying, and this pastor is saying, if you do that, you're leaving the one sacrifice that can save you. The only one that can, that's sufficient. You are abandoning. There no longer remains Christ for you and for your sins if you're leaning on these other things. If you're trusting and having your faith in them. This is the essence of apostasy. During this day and during our day. So we see this contrast here. Between the regular, continual sacrifices. So what is this sin? It's a sin of apostasy. This particular sin is them going on into the work of the Old Testament, the rituals and the sacrifices. They wanted to do those and not lean wholly and completely upon Christ. Let me ask this question. Who who are these people? This may be answered in some way already, but let me clarify here who these people are. We see this a little bit in verse 26 as well. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Who is this warning for? Who is this people that this pastor is speaking to? Look at verse 26. For if what? We go on sinning deliberately. This warning can't be for those in the outside world. It's not for those out there in the world that's going to be apost- that are going to be apostasy because they never had any- they never had the knowledge of truth, right? 
They were never given that knowledge of truth. They never understood that. They're on the outside. The Lord will deal with them. That's not what this passage is speaking of. Other passages speak of those who don't know Christ, never heard of Christ. Other passages deal with that. This morning, we're not looking at those outside the world. This morning, we're looking at we. And this pastor said we, those grammar, English people here, first person, plural, right? Pastor saying we, all of us, are in danger of abandoning Christ, including the preacher. We're in danger of abandoning Christ, not leaning on Him and Him alone as our sacrifice. So we know that it is to this congregation that He's speaking to. The congregation He's preaching this sermon to, He's saying we, including me, the pastor, we are in danger. We need to heed this warning. It is for us this morning. But I believe if we look at the context, there's also a broader meaning, a broader we. Because we all know this morning, don't we, that there are some here that are in our midst that aren't in our midst. We're wondering where they are. You see in verse 24 and 25... It's amazing how in verse 24 and 25 it says, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. You see, those who were willing or wanting to go back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they stopped meeting as regularly with God's people in church on Sunday morning. They started missing for every reason under the book. It says here in verse 27, or excuse me, 25, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of, notice that word, the word of some. Who is in danger of apostasy? It is each one of you sitting here, including pastor, standing behind his pulpit, and every one of those who have been in our midst, who we call part of us, and some of those have stopped meeting, they've began neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. They're in danger of apostasy. You see the precipice here? This isn't a shoulder on the road. This is a cliff that you fall off of and, 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 and to devastation. We're not talking about getting off the path a little bit and then kind of finding our bearings and getting back on the path. I'm talking about when you go off the road, you're gone. Apostasy. What are some of the signs, elders, of apostasy? Of those who we begin to get concerned about, right? It's those who are neglecting the regular meeting together of, of believers. Isn't that, isn't that what we do? Because, friends, we, brothers and sisters, we care for your soul. Your soul is in danger if you're not regularly meeting with God's people. Not just in sort of danger. I'm talking apostasy. What kind of danger are you in? If, as it says in verse 22, a full assurance of faith isn't growing in your heart. A confession of hope for a heaven to come isn't, isn't something that drives you. A desire that you want to be with the Lord. That's your hope. It says here, a hope that's not wavering. See, these are fruits and evidences of a person who is receiving the gospel. A faith that is sure. A hope that is confident in, in what God is going to do in the heaven that he provides for us. A love for one another. But there are some who have neglected the, the meeting together. And he goes right into verse 26. He says, you know, what the, 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 you know what the fall off of those who aren't doing those things? It's apostasy. 
What are they in danger of? What's the danger of apostasy? Verse 27. There's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I, I don't really feel like I need to explain it. I mean, every translation out there is going to make this look horrible. It is something we should fear. It should cause us to tremble, to think that there have been people who have been in our midst that have fallen away. A fearful, and this is an expectation, something we should expect. It is a surety. What's being said here is that God's going to make sure he judges this, this leaving Christ. He is sure to judge this. There is a fearful expectation of judgment. Of judgment. This isn't a slap on the hand. We know that because this judgment is then described. This is all one thing, but it's, it's, it's this, okay, if you're not sure what judgment looks like, it's a fury of fire that will consume you. And we, we, don't, we don't treat this lightly or happily. I mean, I'm not, not excited about this. None of us are. But it's the truth. As a father saying to a child, it's hot. It'll hurt you. See this warning, this pastor? He loves his congregation. I love you enough to say that if you abandon Christ, if you leave Christ and go to, on to other means of dealing with your sin, there's a fearful expectation of judgment, brothers and sisters, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He's saying this to a congregation, not to the outside world. This is not the pagan, wicked, horrible person. This is not Atlantic, Atlantic Boulevard people, right? This is us. This is his church. Why would God do this? Why is this such an awful, why is this such an awful eternal falling off. There's not a middle ground here. There's not a, a, a graded hill. There's a, there's a cliff that we fall off of here. Is this the kind of God we worship? Many of you have heard it said, well, my God will never do that. Well, your God isn't the one you have to answer to. The God of Scripture is the one you have to answer to. You see, I believe this congregation had the same problem, the same questions, the same angst in their heart as we do this morning in handling this. Because we, we just can't get our heads around it. Why would God do this? How can God do this? What in the world is happening? And so this pastor goes through and gives them two points, two bases for this, this, this awful truth. It's true 
And there's two reasons that it's true, and those are our next two points in the sermon this morning. Just to let you know, the first point was longer. The second point is going to be a little shorter. And then the final point is going to be the shortest. So there you go. If you're looking at the clock, which you shouldn't be, but uh, just in case. Point number two, which is a basis for this horrible truth. The basis for this horrible truth is point number two. Apostasy scorns the very work of God. Apostasy, which is the denying of Christ, scorns the very work of God. And we see this in verses 28 and 29. And he goes from lesser to greater in his argumentation. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here it is, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 is what they're referencing here in verse 28, and it speaks of setting aside the law of Moses. And this person dies, notice this phrase, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, you don't have to turn there. You may want to write it down and look at it later. But let me read to you Deuteronomy 17 and see that we're actually very much, this pastor is quoting a passage dealing with apostasy. Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 6, says this, If there is found among you, meaning God's people, Israel, right? If there is found among you, Deuteronomy 17, within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant... In other words, if there's anyone here that transgresses the covenant in the midst of you, in what way? Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 17. And has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden. You see what happens here? If there's any among you who has left the faith of Israel and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, This is apostasy, right? They've left the faith of Israel. It is told you, verse 4, this is what's to happen to these people who have gone and served other gods and left the faith. It is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. In other words, you're supposed to go find this out. What's going on? Is this person actually doing this? And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, so among God's people, Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. So they left the faith, Deuteronomy chapter 17. They went to serve other gods and to worship them. And the church is supposed to come there, Israel, God's people are supposed to come and determine that that's in fact taken place. And if it has, they're to be killed. Pretty harsh, isn't it? Pretty amazing. That's what's being taken place here in verse 28 when it says, if anyone has set aside the law of Moses, in other words, they're going to serve other gods, and so the law of Moses is you have no other gods before me, right? That's the very heart of it. Set aside the law of Moses without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, they're to be killed. Pretty amazing. But, verse 29 says, if that's true of what took place in the Old Testament, 
Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has done three things? Notice this. There's three things that this person has done. He has spurned the Son of God or trampled underfoot the Son of God. Some of you have translations that say spurn. Others have translations that say trampled underfoot. Um, so mine here says spurned, but it's, it's, it's the same word there. Spurn the Son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outreached the spirit of grace. How much worse is your punishment? How much worse is this punishment? If the Old Testament, they would die, they would be stoned because of their abandoning God and apostatizing, then what would take place in this new covenant, this New Testament, how much worse is the punishment do you think will one deserve who, here's the three witnesses, brothers and sisters, a witness against the, the, Jesus Christ himself, spurned the Son of God. Witness against God the Father who created the covenant, which says, and has profaned the blood of the covenant, which he has sanctified. And then a witness against the Spirit himself has outraged the Spirit of grace. You have, as an apostate, you have three witnesses against you. Just as in the Old Testament it said you had to be, you had to be um, brought before them on two to three witnesses, you have three witnesses against you. Jesus Christ, God the Father, and this Holy Spirit testify against you in your apostasy. Because you have spurned the Son of God. You have profaned the blood of the covenant that the Father has provided for you. And you've outraged the Spirit of grace. Three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think that person should deserve? That's the argument here. The trampling underfoot the Son of God is the idea of speaking or understanding that you regard Jesus Christ as nothing. What do you walk on? Things that you consider to be nothing. You trample underfoot. You regard it as having no value and worth. You trample it underfoot. Our, some passages say you spurn the Son of God. The idea is that you consider as nothing Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. That's what you're doing. Do you think that's what you're doing? Do you think that's what people are doing? You see, God's view of apostasy is this. Our view of apostasy is, you know what? If that person's a good person, they love their family, they go to church, they pay their taxes, they're nice to people then God's going to somehow, not at all, friends, apart from Christ, this person's spurning the Son of God. He's trampling underfoot the Son of God. Hell's going to be full of good people in their own eyes. Who is this person that we are spurning or trampling underfoot? What is the very person in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3? He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe and the word by the word of his power. You trample him under your foot. You don't, you don't think that's going to receive punishment? The very radiance of God himself and you're disregarding it in Jesus Christ the Son? Profaning the blood of Christ? This idea of profane is the word they used in the Old Testament for common. In other words, they're saying that this blood that Jesus shed was common everyday blood. In other words, you're saying Jesus' blood is just like the blood of goats and bulls. It's common every day. It's not 
It's not holy and set apart. It's not special and unique. It's not according to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, Hebrews 10, 19, right above where we're looking here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like the lamb without blemish or spot. You see, we're calling the blood of Christ common, ordinary, when we leave Christ to deal with our sins in some other way. This phrase here, I can't take a lot of time on it, but this phrase here that speaks of in verse 29, by which he has been, by which he was sanctified, and that's speaking of how can a person be an apostate and also sanctified. Well, the word sanctification actually is most commonly used in the New Testament as a moral issue. In other words, when someone's sanctified, they're made holy, right? They're, they're, they're made as a moral attribute. They're, they're, they're morally made holy. But most commonly in the Old Testament, the word for sanctified is actually a word speaking of status. In other words, the instruments and the utensils in this tabernacle were sanctified. That doesn't mean they were morally holy, does it? It just means they were set apart for a very divine and particular purpose and use for God. What's being spoken of here is that this person is in the midst of God's people. He's come and he's been in the midst of God's people. And in that way, he was set apart with all of other, all of other God's people and seen as this is one who's been set apart for God's use and for God's purpose. He's been sanctified in that sense. The person who was an apostate was sanctified in that he or she was a part of God's people, the church. And they were set apart for God's purpose. Yet when he abandoned the faith, he's mocking the very image of God that's supposed to be displayed by the church and by God's people. In other words, he's profaning the blood of the covenant. He's showing that the covenant and the blood of Christ doesn't matter. That's the idea there. If you want to talk to me more about that, we can a little bit later, but... Let me move on. The third thing that takes place here is the outrage to the Spirit. The word has some other nuances of insulted, disdained, offended, mocking. None of these would make sense if the Holy Spirit was an influence or a force, would it? The Holy Spirit's a person. And when we leave Christ... We are mocking and insulting and disdaining and offending Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, a person. We offended him. Let me land for just a moment and and just say a few things in way of application at this point. You see, these people never denied that Jesus Christ lived. These people never question whether Jesus Christ died on the cross. These people didn't have a problem knowing that Jesus Christ had done everything. They knew the knowledge of truth. They knew what he had done. They didn't believe it. Doesn't it say, if you confess with your mouth, then you will be saved? Is that what it says? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. There's a lot of people who can confess with their mouth And they've never believed in their heart. Brothers and sisters, if that's you this morning, you're an apostate. 
You do not know Christ. Now, you know information about him. You know facts about him. But you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that he is the Christ. And you will be saved. You see, this is the message that they rejected. Jesus Christ, the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, lived a sinless life and died on a Roman cross, shedding his blood that he might remove the penalty of sin once and for all for his church, that, he might, that we might appear in the very presence of our holy creator with Jesus Christ who is interceding for us. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, takes away the sin of the world, And by faith, you have received that forgiveness. That's what they were rejecting. They were saying, I think I'm going to go back to my old sacrifices, to the ways that I used to do, and kind of take Jesus too. They were neglecting the assembling together. So they were still kind of every once in a while hopping into the Christian church and doing the thing and living a good life. And everybody found out how they were doing and caught up with them and everything. And, And then they went on to do what they wanted to do. We can breathe easy, can't we? Because as far as I know, I've talked to most of you. None of you are in danger of abandoning your faith and going back to Judaism. So we don't have anything to worry about, right? I mean, there's, there's really no danger in this passage. The warning is for all those crazy people who want to go, go back to Judaism. That isn't us. I think we have the same danger before us this morning because we deny Christ. And here's the point. It's not that we outright deny Christ. We deny Christ as our only sacrifice for sin. That, that's, that's the trick right there. That Christ is our only sacrifice for sin. And I believe there's, there's two ways at least that we have, have ability to fall into this danger. One is that we ignore sin. We ignore sin. Now none of us here would say that we... That we none of us here would say we are without sin. Or that sin's a problem. But I believe that's the problem is that we think sin is a problem among many problems that we have. That sin is a problem, and we have all kinds of other problems as well. Brothers and sisters, sin is our problem. It is the problem. It is the problem with everything. Why do I say that? Because God says sin is the problem. Our struggles and fears and anxieties and troubles, in so many areas so often, are not sin for us. You see, my problem with fear is because my job is so insecure. If my job was more secure, I'd be, I wouldn't fear. My problem with dread is the overwhelming expectations that people place on me. My problem with anger is because of that arrogant, pompous coworker I work with. My financial problems are due to my lack of income, and I'm not making what I used to make, has nothing to do with covetousness. You see what we do? Now, let me, let me clarify here. I'm not saying that sin is our only problem, okay? There, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when we address our problems as if they're everything else but sin, and we don't see sin as at the very root and the very, the very heart of everything that is a problem, if we don't see that first, then I believe... We're going to go and find answers that are not Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, if sin's not our problem, Christ is not our answer. He's not. 
And you're going to go to all kinds of other places. You're going to, you're going to try to find all kinds of other saviors other than Christ alone if you see that your sin is not the problem. We'll go everywhere. What do our emotions tell us about what our heart really desires? Our emotions, our fears, are excellent at probing what we really want to trust in. Our anxieties tell us what we're wanting to place our hope in. Our struggles, our declaration that we are not in charge and that God is. <laughs> Take it from when it knows. How is God using the circumstances? That arrogant coworker, your financial woes, insecurity in your job, the struggles with your children, the difficulty with your spouse. How is he using those circumstances to cause you to trust in Christ alone? Go there first, brothers and sisters. First, you ignore sin. I believe that's one of the ways. Second is, and I'll be short with this one, moralism. This is basically our own path to God. Did you know that you can love your family well, care for your children fully, never cheat on your spouse, go to work every day and work hard, go to church and even serve others in need, have a position, a positive outlook on life, and be content in pretty much everything in your life as if everything is wonderful and you can do it all without the strength and ability of God in Christ. You know that you can do that? Did you know there's preachers this morning preaching sermons about how we should share more, love more, give more, care more, be brave and encouraged and succeed? They even point to the Bible and say, just as the boy with the fishes, you need to share. Just as Boaz, you need to love. Just as David, you need to be brave. Just as Paul, you need to care. Just as Joshua, you need to um, um, be strong and courageous. And at the end of the day, any Jewish rabbi and any Mormon I think the term now is pastor for those who lead in the Mormon church. Any Mormon pastor can teach these lessons. In other words, they can be Christless. It's our own path to God. The gospel is not get Jesus and he'll make you better. God could care less about you being moral. The gospel isn't in your efforts to try harder, let Jesus help. That's not the gospel. That's apostasy, brothers and sisters. That is, that is not the gospel. Jesus is not a helper. He's a savior from our sin. God wants us to trust him. And in so being united with him, he's going to cause us to reflect his character. That is far different than being good or moral, I promise you. So those are some ways maybe you can consider how maybe you're not going to abandon the Christian faith for Judaism, but that may be some of the ways that you are in your own heart, I pray, that you are abandoning Christ alone as your sufficient sacrifice. Thirdly and finally, why is it that this punishment, this apostasy is so harsh? Let me finish here. Point number three, apostasy ignores the person of God. So did you see in point two, apostasy scorns the work of God? See, it scorns the work of God. 
It says it spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, outraged the Spirit, the very work of God you're turning away from when you go to apostasy, apostasy and you turn away from Christ. But secondly, or second, the second reason, which is the third point, is that it ignores the Son, excuse me, ignores the person of God. Notice what he says here in verse 30. For we know him, for we know him. Who? Well, we know this God from the Old Testament. We know him who said, verse 30, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We know this God. We know this God who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the Lord will judge his people. Now, this passage is actually the this is actually out of the song of Moses that Mark read for us this morning. It was a song, a pretty long song. They obviously had longer worship services than we do. So, if you're worried about the length of our worship service this morning, they had longer. They sung longer. They sung longer songs. This song, if you read through it carefully, you'll find that they were to sing it for the purpose of memorizing it, so that they would know that their God is a God who will punish them if they sin. Now, why would God be doing this? Moses gave them the song as they were getting ready to enter to the promised land. And he says, memorize the song, sing the song to one another, so that you will be warned not to live in the way of those who are you're going to the land to live. In other words, don't take on their idolatry. Don't take on their gods. Don't pursue their ends and their aims and their ambitions. Be a people that are distinct. At the end of Deuteronomy 32, after the song was laid out, it says this in verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of the song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which, here it is, I am warning you today that you may command them to your children and they may be careful to do all the words of the law. This is a warning. This song was a warning for them. They were singing warnings to themselves as they went into the promised land. I want us to notice two things here from these two different quotes from Deuteronomy 32. The first quote from Deuteronomy 32 is, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And basically here's the point, and it's very simple, and it is this. God and God alone is the rightful judge of all creation. Now, some may say, well, this message, the way Shane's been talking, seems to thwart the idea that God's a God of love and mercy and grace. None at all, brothers and sisters. God's a God who's a God of love, mercy, and grace, justice, judgment, and wrath, all in the same person. It doesn't thwart it. And we can't ignore the God of judgment and wrath because we like the God of love and grace more. And, and, and there's some, honestly, sadly, who love the God of, of wrath and judgment and like talking about that all the time and never speak of the God of love and mercy and grace. Right? Don't, don't you know those two people? <laughs> We'd have to hold them together. Here, though, the passage says that God is a God of vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And no matter how much this world, listen to this, no matter how much this world seeks justice, brothers, on this side of heaven, it is inadequate. It is unfair. And it will never be right until the Lord comes. Those people who we hear about on the news, 
who kill many, many, many people or abuse the young in all kinds of ways and then they get 20, 30 years prison. Some may get life sentence in prison. Is that justice? Well, brothers and sisters, that's the best we can do in a fallen world. But there will be a day when justice will be done and all that is sin and wrong, God will vindicate. God's the one who repaid. Second thing I want us to notice about this passage is this. In verse 30 it says, The Lord will judge, notice this last phrase, His people. His people. And we don't think about that. No, God's going to judge all those awful, wicked people that are not as good as we are. They aren't dressed up. Those jokers are laying in bed. That's who God's going to judge. He's not going to judge us. No. This passage said He's going to judge His people. Especially those who are living in a way contrary to Christ and yet in the midst of God's people. Don't we find that to be the pattern throughout Scripture? Who was it that sent the Assyrians to God's people in the book of Isaiah? Well, God did. Who was it that drug God's people out of their land and took them to Babylonian captivity? What does Jeremiah say? Well, that was God judging his people. Who was it that led all those people back in Egypt that came out of the land to die in the wilderness? Who was it that did that? Well, God did. You see, there is a sense where God is jealous to display His glory through His people. And you are not going to be an obstacle to that. We are not going to be an obstacle to that. We're to be a reflection of God's grace and glory to the world. But Shane, that's the Old Testament. We have Christ now. We're not going that, to... That's, that's not true of us. That's, that's all Old Testament stuff. There's no, there's no judgment. There's no condemnation for us. True. And I think right now, hopefully, the truth of this passage is starting to settle in. If God would drag His people off to Babylon in captivity if he would slaughter a bunch of Israelites because they were sinful and idolatrous in, through, through, through the nation of Assyria, if he'd let all of his people fall in the land, in, in the wilderness, in the, after they came out of Egypt, if God would do all that in the Old Testament, and today we have Christ, how much worse punishment do you think we will deserve who have spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant which we've been sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. How much more punishment do you think we will deserve if we leave Christ and abandon Him for our own means of being made right with God? I think that truth was resting on God's people in this passage as I pray that truth is resting on your heart this morning. And then the pastor had one thing else to say. In a loving warning to his congregation, he said, brothers and sisters, it is a fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of living God. Heed this warning this morning, dear ones, and run to Christ. Repent of your sin, of seeking to find your own way to make your sins right, or ignoring sin, or being moral. Repent of those and trust in Christ alone. Find that your only hope, your only joy, your only satisfaction is in the presence of God Almighty. That can only happen through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray.